listening to the Weekly Discourse on the Man of God Network, featuring a weekly lecture from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. Number seven. After Elizabeth, we come to James I. The, the, the family, now the Tudor dynasty is older than Henry VIII. But Henry and his children reigned over England for about a hundred years. After he died, there's Edward, then there's Elizabeth, I'm, I'm sorry, there's Mary, then there's Elizabeth. Elizabeth dies in 1603, and she had no natural heir. She's the virgin queen. Virginia is named after her. She had no natural heir, and so the Tudor line ended with her death in 1603. And the next um, rightful successor to the throne of England was her cousin, who was James VI of Scotland. He was called to the throne. Now, he had been raised and had lived in Presbyterian Scotland. And as a result of this, many Puritans held high hopes that further reform in the Church of England would come as a result of the reign of James II of Scotland, but James I of England. Now, as he traveled south, from Scotland for his coronation in England, in London, the Puritan leadership of the church offered him what has been called the millinery petition. Now, the millinery petition is purported to have been uh, signed by a thousand ministers of the Church of England. We have no way of verifying whether or not they act, a thousand ministers actually signed it. But uh, I've put it... Uh, together here on the PowerPoint, because I want to read through it, or at least parts of it, so that you can see what it was they were calling James to do. Now, the, the bibliographical material is at the top. This is from a website. Um, you, you can see it there before you. But I want to read it for you and pay close attention to, to this. Remembering, this is Puritan ministers who are seeking to appeal to James, very hopeful that this king at last will move forward the process of reformation in the Church of England. Okay, so let's go. Most gracious and dread sovereign, seeing it has pleased the divine majesty to the great comfort of all good Christians to advance your highness according to your just title to the peaceable government of this church and commonwealth of England, we the ministers of the gospel in this land, neither as factious men affecting a popular parody in the church, nor as schismatics aiming at the dissolution of the state ecclesiastical, but as the faithful servants of Christ and loyal subjects to your majesty, desiring and longing for the redress of diverse abuses of the church, could do no less in our obedience to God, service to your majesty, loves to his, love to his church, then acquaint your princely majesty with our particular gifts. For, as your princely pen writeth, the king as a good physician must first know what peccant humors his patient naturally is most subject unto before he can begin his cure. So the king wrote these things and they're taking him up. They're going to let him know 
what are the uh, the ill humors so that he'll be able to prescribe the right kind of cure. Okay, you see, you see what they're doing here. And although diverse of us that um, sue for Reformation have formerly, in respect of the time, subscribed to the book, some upon protestation, some upon exposition given them, some with condition rather than the, than the church should have been deprived of their labor and ministry, Yet now we, to the number of more than a thousand of your majesty's subjects and ministers, all groaning as under a common burden of human rights and ceremonies, do with one joint consent, humble ourselves at your majesty's feet, to be eased and relieved in this behalf. Our humble suit, then, unto your majesty, is that these offenses following, some may be removed, some amended, some qualified. All right, now this is, this is the introduction. What do they want? What are they looking for? One, in the church service, that the cross in baptism, interrogatories ministered to infants. Now, you know what that is? That is when the infant was baptized, the infant was asked questions. Of course, the infant can't respond. So who responds on behalf of the infant? The godparents. See, that's what the godparent does, speaks on behalf of the in infant. And they're objecting to this practice because what can the godparent say on behalf of the infant? Uh, confirmation, as superfluous, may be taken away. Baptism not to be ministered by women, and so explained. The cap and surplus not urged. That examination may go before the communion. That it be ministered with a sermon. Now, all of this is telling you what's going on in the Church of England, isn't it? The, the, the Lord's Supper is being observed without the Word. It's not Word and Sacrament, it's just Sacrament. And they believe that it's necessary for the Word to be preached, that, that, that the Sacrament needs to be explained by preaching in order for it to go forward properly. See, okay? That diverse terms of priests and absolution and some other used with the ring in marriage and other such like in the book may be corrected, the longsomeness of service abridged. Now, how do you like that? Puritans complaining about long services. Does that shatter a stereotype? Well, don't let it, because the sermons did tend to be really long. But they're just complaining about the length of the service that they had to read from the prayer book at this point. Okay, But uh, the longsomeness of service abridged. Church songs and music moderated to better edification that the Lord's day be not profaned, the rest upon holy days not so strictly urged. You know that there were other days besides the first day of the week that were obliged for these people. Now, are you seeing remnants of Rome here? See, all of this stuff is remnants of Rome. This is the middle way under Elizabeth. Elizabeth has died, James has come to the throne, and they want to see these things amended. The rest upon holy days not so strictly urged, because on, on holy days you were required to keep it as if it were a Sabbath day. But on the Sabbath day, you could play. See, it's a, it's a strange mix-up here. That there may be a uniformity of doctrine prescribed, no popish opinion to be any more taught or defended, no ministers charged to teach their people to bow at the name of Jesus, that the canonical scriptures only be read in the church. What else might be being read in the church? The Apocrypha, which is not considered to be a canonical scripture. See? Okay, that's one. Two, concerning church ministers, 
that none hereafter be admitted into the ministry but able and sufficient men, and those to preach diligently and especially upon the Lord's day, that such as be already entered and cannot preach may either be removed and some charitable course taken with them for their relief, or else be forced according to the value of their livings to maintain preachers. Now, let me explain that there. You, you have men who have been ordained to the priesthood, but they're not functioning and they're not able to function as preachers. They just don't have the gifts and the ability. So the Puritans are not saying turn them out, but they're saying provide some means, take, take them out, put someone else in there and provide some charitable means to support them so that they're supplied, or um, use the money that they receive, force them to take the money that they receive and they're not really doing anything for to support someone else who will be able to preach on their behalf in their churches. That King Edward's statute for the lawfulness of ministers' marriages be revived. That ministers be not urged to subscribe, but according to the law, to the articles of religion and the king's supremacy only. That is, so not to the Book of Common Prayer, not to the homilies, not to any other document, only to the 39 articles and to the king's supremacy. You see, all of these Puritans are willing to acknowledge that the king rightly has has a place, at least a political place, if not even a place over the Church of England. They're not really radicals in this. Thirdly, for church livings and maintenance, that bishops leave their commendums. Now, I've put in a, a little explanation of what a commendum is. It's a benefice held in trust for a patron, a means of increasing, increasing personal income. Now, the way that appointments were made in the Church of England is very confusing. But essentially, each local church, each local parish, was subject to a system of patronage. And the patron owned the right to appoint the minister to that church. Now, the patron could be the wealthy landlord nearby who may, over the course of years in some way, obtained the right of patronage for that church. It might belong to the bishop. It might belong to a monastery nearby. It might belong to... Um, the, the, the town council. It might belong to some kind of political entity. There's, there's a whole variety of possibilities for patronage. And oftentimes, a patron would um, hold back on appointing an individual in order to um, um, gain money, especially if the patron was a bishop. Okay, Notice that bishops leave their commendums, meaning the bishop... Let's, let's say a bishop has obtained the patronage or the right of appointment for 10 parishes and the total income for the year from those parishes might be, let's just give it a number, 500 pounds, which is probably a very generous salary for 10 men. That would be a good annual salary for 10 men, 500 pounds, meaning 50 pounds a year would, uh, would be a skilled laborer at the high end would make 50 pounds a year. So let's say a bishop held... 10 of those, and it was worth 500. And he kept most of that money to himself and only gave out a little to send someone to be um, to serve in those churches. He was making himself fat and rich. And they're, they're protesting against that. Now, they're still talking about bishops. Some holding parsonage, some prebends, some vicarages with their bishoprics. 
So not only might they be the Bishop of Gloucester or the Bishop of Durham or the, or the Archbishop of York, but along with that, they hold the right to these other places and they take in the money. That double beneficed men be not suffered to hold some two, some three benefices with cure, and some two, three, or four dignities besides. Now, the cure is has reference to the curate. The man who is in charge of the parish is the vicar. Okay? But if, if a vicar held two benefices, that is, two livings, the right to two livings, and it's possible that you could do that. If, if you were from a wealthy family or if you had the right kind of connections, you could receive the living from... Uh, parish uh, St. Mary's Ottery over here and parish uh, St. John Augustine over here. You might have both. And you get the money from it. And what you do is you live in that one because it's better. And maybe you get 40 pounds for this one over here and you find a young guy who's just out of the university and you pay him 10 to take the cure or to be your curate for you and you siphon off the other 30 pounds yourself. So you're getting fat and rich over there. So they're protesting against this. It, the system is also called pluralism or plurality. They're protesting against that. Um, that impropriations, I've given you a, a, a definition of this, profits for the sale of church office or property. If a layman held a uh, the, the right of patronage to a benefice, he could sell that at personal profit. Uh, that impropriations annexed to bishoprics and colleges be demised only to the preacher's incumbents for the old rent, that the impropriations of layman's fees be charged with a sixth or seventh part of their worth to the maintenance of the preaching minister. So th they want to find a way to ensure that each parish has a godly man who is able to preach the word of God in that parish. Okay, Four, for church discipline that the discipline and excommunication may be administered according to Christ's own institution, or at the least, that enormities may be redressed, as namely, that excommunication come not forth under the name of laypersons, chancellors, officials, etc., that men be not excommunicated for trifles and twelve-penny matters, that means cheap little things, that none be excommunicated without consent of his pastor, that the officers be not suffered to extort unreasonable fees. Now, the fee might be how much it costs to have the bans read before your marriage. Prior to your marriage, it was required that bans, B-A-N-N-S, would be read publicly, announcing the fact that uh, John Doe and Mary Smith were to be married. And the reason for the bans was to ensure that John Doe and Mary Smith were not in any anyway encumbered from being married to one another. So these bans had to be announced, and the church clerks could charge for the reading of the bans, for the use of the church building, for all kinds of things. So exorbitant or extortion of unreasonable fees by church officers is being protested. That none having jurisdiction of or registers places put out the same to farm. That is, uh, uh, those with responsibilities of being clerks in the church don't send that out to someone else that diverse popish canons, as for restraint of marriage at certain times, be reversed. The, the papal church believed that, uh, for example, in the month of December, um, you, they couldn't, you couldn't be married. Now, I don't remember why, but that was their idea. During the month of December, you couldn't, you couldn't have a marriage unless you paid. 
if you were willing to pay the price, they would overlook the the prohibition on marriages in December. And that's what they're talking about here. Okay. That the longsomeness of suits in ecclesiastical courts, which hang sometimes two, three, four, five, six, seven years, may be restrained. That the oath ex officio, now we're going to see this appearing other times. The oath ex officio is a very important little practice. I've got a definition here. An oath requiring the person questioned to answer every question put to him truthfully. Hence, exposing himself to self-accusation. If you were brought before a church court, you were the, the 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 proceeds would begin by the administration of the oath ex officio, and if you didn't take the ex oath ex officio, you were immediately subject to severe penalties. And this oath required you to say that you would truthfully answer every question that was posed to you. Now, the reason that they made you take the oath and force you to say that is because they wanted to ask you questions that would incriminate yourself. See, they knew or they suspected that they knew that you were guilty of violating some of the canons, the statutes, the practices, the laws of the Church of England. And so by beginning with the oath ex officio, which if you didn't take it, you were subject to severe penalties. If you did take it, then being an oath you were required to fulfill that oath and thus testify against yourself. And the Puritans hated the oath ex officio. They, this enraged them that the, the, the law courts of the Church of England required them to do this. And, well, you see, the, that the oath ex officio, whereby men are forced to accuse themselves, be more sparingly used, that licenses for marriages without bans ask be more cautiously granted, these with such other abuses yet remaining in practice in the Church of England, we are able to show not to be agreeable to the Scriptures, if it shall please your Highness further to hear us, or more at large by writing to be informed or by conference among the learned to be resolved. Now, conference there means a conferring. Generally, when they use the word conference, it's not in the same sense that we use it today. We have missions conferences or youth conferences or uh, preaching conferences or things like that where you bring in a couple of speakers and the speakers will preach and people will listen and everybody will go away edified, right? They didn't use the term that way. When they spoke of conference, they mean, meant a gathering of interested parties who would come to discuss and settle certain matters. A conference that was held in a church was typically a, a, a meeting where the men of the church would come bringing their Bibles and they would discuss and debate a particular matter from the Scriptures, trying to settle that matter based upon what they found in the Word of God. So when, when we read conference here, that's what we have to think about. Um, or by conference among the learned to be resolved. And yet we doubt not, but that without any further process, your majesty of whose Christian judgment we have received so great a taste already, is able of yourself to judge of the equity of this cause. God, we trust, has appointed your highness, our physician, to heal these diseases. Now, they're picking up what they said at the beginning, remember? They were going to tell him what the diseases were so that he could heal them because he had written that that's what the king ought to be doing. Now, they're reminding him of that. And we say with Mordecai to Esther, Who knoweth whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time? Thus your majesty shall do that which we are persuaded shall be acceptable to God, honorable to your majesty, 
in all succeeding ages, profitable to his church, which shall be thereby increased, comfortable to your ministers, notice your ministers, because you're the head of the church, which shall be no more suspended, silenced, disgraced, imprisoned for men's traditions, and prejudicial to none but to those that seek their own quiet credit and profit in the world. Not quite finished. Thus, with all dutiful submission, referring ourselves to your majesty's pleasure for your gracious answer as God shall direct you, we most humbly recommend your highness to the divine majesty whom we beseech for Christ his sake to dispose your royal heart to do herein what shall be to his glory, the good of his church, and your endless comfort, your majesty's most humble subjects, the ministers of the gospel that desire not a disorderly innovation, but a due and godly reformation. Now, that's a fascinating document, isn't it? Because it gives to us all kinds of information about what they saw in Elizabeth's via media, middle way. You see why it was accused of being very much, at least from appearance, a Roman church. Because many of these things are the remnants of the practices of the Church of Rome. And these Puritans believed that at this moment, with a king who was coming down from Presbyterian Scotland, a place where one of the best Reformed churches was present, perhaps the political climate would be amenable to, uh, to changes that would be made um, by means of the court. Okay, Now, this was followed by the Hampton Court Conference in January 1604. James agreed that he would meet with some representatives of the Puritan movement, and they met at Hampton Court Palace, which is just outside of London. Everybody's looking at that, so I'm going to take it off the screen. Naughty, naughty, naughty. I can see your eyes. Hampton Court Palace is one of my favorite palaces to visit. If you ever go to London, it's worth taking the train. It's a short train ride out of London to the south and a little bit to the west and to go and see it. It was built originally by Cardinal Wolsey and then taken over by Henry VIII. And uh, much of the Tudor part of the palace is still there. So you can get a picture of Henry VIII and, and what it was like to live there. It has one of the best Tudor uh, kitchens in all of Europe. And then the other side of the palace is uh, Georgian from the beginning of the 18th century, and it's beautiful, and it gives you an idea of what um, palatial life in the 18th century was about. But anyways, that's beside the point. They met, they met at Hampton Court, and uh, three uh, Puritan ministers led by John Reynolds, and they were really, um, they were chosen because they were middle-of-the-road Puritan ministers. They, they weren't... Um, men who were pressing hard for Reformation. They were men who were maybe suggesting Reformation. They met together with James and with eight of the bishops of the Church of England at Hampton Court Palace. And it's at that conference that James uttered one of his most famous phrases, four words, which in many ways defined James's rule over the Church of England. He simply said, no bishop, no king. When the Puritans 
requested a Presbyterian system, James's response was, no bishop, no king. Now, a couple of things could be said about that. On the one hand, James really had a rocky relationship with the Presbyterian elders in Edinburgh. It had not gone well. Uh, they were not men who were easily uh, bowed by his the, by the strength of the royal will. And they they were men who wanted to do what the word of God said. So there had been contention already. So James, in a sense, came to England with a bad taste in his mouth for Presbyterianism because he found a bunch of elders in Edinburgh who wouldn't bow down before him on religious matters. But also, when he came to England, he recognized that the Episcopalian structure of the church was the perfect means by which he would be able to control the population. One author, Christopher Hill, put it this way, Objections to popular Bible reading long survived. The Tudor Church strove hard to build up a nationwide network of parish ministers capable of meeting the new demand for preaching. Their existence would also serve a police purpose, since through them the authorities might truly know within a short time by name who and how many enemies there are to religion and the commonwealth. The Puritan Lawrence Chatterton, preaching on Romans 13, stressed the espionage potential of a clergy loyal to the government. Now, James understood this point, you see. Now, think about it in another way. In, in a time when there is no means of mass communication or transportation, but theoretically, the entire nation assembles every Sunday in, in the buildings of the Church of England. It was required by law that you, if you were subject to the king, it was required by law that you attend your local parish church every Sunday. So in theory, the whole nation assembled every Sunday in those church buildings scattered throughout the land. Now, what the king could do in order to communicate theor in theory with the entire kingdom was to make a decree, have it copied out and sent to the bishops, and then have it copied and sent to each of the ministers of those churches with the order that it be read at the church. And so within the space of a couple of weeks, in theory, the king could communicate with his entire kingdom by means of the structure of the church. You see, he knew that it was his means for controlling and, and demonstrating his political power by means of the church. No bishop, no king. James's policy would not help the Puritan cause. Now, there are one or two things that need to be stated. There was one positive, maybe, maybe one positive, that came out of the Hampton Court Conference, and that was that the king agreed to a new translation of the Bible, which we call the King James Version. The authorized version of 1611 was a result of the appeal of these Puritans in 1603 at the Hampton Court Conference. Now, the reason I say may is because one of James's motives was to bury the Geneva Bible. He didn't like the Geneva Bible, or the, especially the notes of the Geneva Bible, which he believed in some way were causing his subjects to be rebellious. 
And so he recognized that if he granted this request for a new English translation of the Bible, it would put the Geneva Bible in the past and make the circumstances even better for him to be able to maintain control over the whole nation. So he had mixed motivations in his granting uh, the permission to translate the, the King James Bible. The second thing that I want to say, and then we'll take some questions. We only have about five minutes left. It's really important to remember, and when we come to talk about the Synod of Dort, we'll say a lot more about this, but at this point, 1603 through almost to 1625, basically the reign of King James I, there is essentially, in the hierarchy of the Church of England, a Calvinist consensus. That is, most of the bishops of the Church of England at this point, in one way or another, sub, um, support a predestinarian interpretation of the Bible. Okay, now That's not to say that they're reformed, because they believe in the Episcopalian structure, and many of them are committed strongly to vestments and high liturgy and all of those things. But along with those things, you have largely a Calvinist consensus or a predestinarian consensus on matters of soteriology in the Church of England during the reign of James I. That's important to keep in mind. It will take on significance later on. Oh, what was number eight? I didn't put eight on the board. I think we had an eight. Uh, well, let's yeah, let's call Hampton Court number eight because there isn't one in my notes. You have yet to see the the length of my outlines. I I in one lecture in one of my other classes, I think I get to the letter N, little at letter N. And uh, there was a student sitting in the back row, and he just started laughing. I said, Peter, what are you laughing at? He says, Dr. Renahan, you're the king of outlines. But it helps to have some place to hang your thoughts. So we'll call eight the Hampton Court Conference, and nine, Charles I. Charles I comes to the throne when his father dies in 1625. <clears throat> now... There may have been a Calvinist consensus in terms of soteriology while his father was alive, but when Charles came to the throne, things changed dramatically. He was married to a Roman Catholic, Henrietta Maria. And in 1633, when George Abbott uh, passed away, he brought to the position of Archbishop of Canterbury a man of enormous importance, and his name was William Laud, L-A-U-D. Wee Willie Laud. He was apparently a man of short stature. Now, Laud is an interesting study. Why did everybody turn around and look at him when I said that? I wasn't... I wasn't it wasn't me. They looked, not me. And we won't say who for those who are watching on the Internet. Laud, there are many things that we could say about him. But for now, for, for our overview, we need to recognize that Laud was committed to two 
major theological positions. Now, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the religious head of the Church of England. The king is the supreme head. The Archbishop of Canterbury is the religious head. The Archbishop of York is second in the, in the, the pecking order of the, the Church of England. But the Archbishop of Canterbury is the most important. Laud was committed to two major theological positions. The first of them is what I call aggressive Arminianism. Aggressive Arminianism. That is, William Laud outlawed, and I'm not trying to make a pun, I'm not, he outlawed a Calvinist interpretation of the 39 Articles. Okay, He said, you cannot interpret or understand them in terms of Calvinism. Now, let's look, take a look at some of the 39 Articles. Okay, You read these along with me. This is Article 9, of original or birth sin. Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit, and therefore in every person born into this world it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated, whereby the lust of the flesh, called in Greek phronema sarkos, which some do expound the wisdom, some sensuality, some the affection, some the desire of the flesh, is not subject to the law of God. And although there is no condemnation for them that believe and are baptized, yet the apostle doth confess that concupiscence and lust hath of itself the nature of sin. Does that sound fairly Calvinistic to you? Ten, of free will. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith. And calling upon God, wherefore we have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God without the grace of God by Christ preventing us, or that is, going before us that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. Does that sound fairly strongly Calvinist? 11. Of the justification of man. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith, and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort, as more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. Remember what we said about the homilies before? They were published in 1559 so that men who up to that point had been Roman priests had something Protestant to be able to say. Twelve of good works. Albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. It's not very different from our own confession, which is the Westminster Confession of Predestination and Election, Article 17. Predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby, 
Before the foundations of the world were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to honor. Wherefore, they which be endued with so excellent a benefit of God be called according to God's purpose by his Spirit working in due season. They through grace obey the calling. They be justified freely. They be made sons of God by adoption. They be made like the image of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. They walk religiously in good works, and at length, by God's mercy, they attain to everlasting felicity. But where's it all come from? Predestination, election, and grace. As the godly consideration of predestination and our election in Christ is full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort to godly persons, and such as feel in themselves the working of the Spirit of Christ, mortifying the works of the flesh and their earthly members, and drawing up their mind to high and heavenly things, as well because it doth greatly establish and confirm their faith of eternal salvation to be enjoyed through Christ, as because it doth fervently kindle their love towards God, so for curious and carnal persons lacking the Spirit of Christ to have continually before their eyes the sentence of God's predestination is a most dangerous downfall, whereby the devil doth thrust them either into desperation or into wretchlessness of most unclean living, no less perilous than desperation. Furthermore, we must receive God's promises in such wise as they be generally set forth to us in Holy Scripture and in our doings, that the will of God is to be followed, which we have expressly declared unto us in his word, in the word of God. Now, those things sound fairly Calvinistic to me, don't they? And yet, we Willie said there is to be no Calvinistic interpretation of them. You know, um, J.C. Ryle called his church the Reformed Church of England on the basis of the 39 articles. When he read these things, he read them in a Calvinistic predestinarian light and he repeatedly called his church the Reformed Church of England as a result. But Archbishop Laud would have none of that. And he outlawed, he prohibited any interpretation of the 39 articles that was in line with Calvinism. The second uh, plank of Archbishop Laud's program is what I've called high church sacerdotalism. He held an essentially Roman view of baptism. That is, that baptism is the first step in the work of grace. It is entrance in the church, and it led to salvation. Of course, this, this was infant baptism. When the water was applied to the head of the baby, grace came into the heart. I find it very difficult to distinguish Laud's view from a Roman view. It seems to me to be essentially the same. But along with high church sacerdotalism, or as part of his high church sacerdotalism, Laud required that the churches be, um, the, the interior of the churches be reordered. And what I mean by that is, Laud was convinced that the greatest act of the worship service was the celebration of the Eucharist. Now, it's, it's very Roman like a mass. And he believed that the only proper way in which the Eucharist could be celebrated was for the church to, or the, the, the room where the worship was to be done, the sanctuary, had to be ordered in such a way that the altar, the pulpit was removed and the altar was placed at the eastern end of the chancel. And then it was to be railed off 
so that only the priest could go beyond the rail. And when the priest was offering up the sacrifice of Christ, he would uh, uh, lift up the host. He would face to the east, face towards Jerusalem, as did the priests of, of the Jews. And then the people would come and they would kneel at the altar and receive the consecrated host from the priest. Now, this is Romanism. And this was of great offense to the Puritans. They hated this action. But it's part of the whole package of Laud's high church sacerdotalism. Um, he required the use of the surplus. He required the use of the cope for the bishops. Laud was an unashamed high churchman. And when he came to power in 1633, he sought to enforce these positions on the Church of England and, of course, on the Church of Scotland. Now, we're not going to talk about the Covenanters and, and all of that, but the Covenanter movement in 1637 came as a result of Laud's attempt to impose these things on the Church of Scotland. Laud sought to force these positions on the Church of England and on Christians in England during the 1630s. And his campaign of persecutions based on these two positions did two things. It drove many Puritans to New England. You have the Great Migration that takes place in the 1630s. That's when the largest group of emigrants leave Old England and come to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and to Connecticut. Or many of them fled to the Netherlands, and they spent the 1630s in the Netherlands, so that you have men who attend the Westminster Assembly a decade later, like Thomas Goodwin and Jeremiah Burroughs, who spent years in the Netherlands in exile. Laud's actions drove the Puritans out of the church. Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you've been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you'd like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org.